Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. Welcome to Conversations with Lulu. My name is Lulu Hazan. I'm an entrepreneur living in Dubai, an investor, a mother, and your host. So for this episode, I'm joined by a very special guest, Noor Swaid. She's a brilliant venture capitalist, an entrepreneur, a mother of three, and a dear friend, and someone that I've known for over a decade. So I'm not going to make a long introduction. I'm just going to let you enjoy the conversation with Noor. So welcome to Conversations with Lulu. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Noor, you're, uh, you're the star venture capitalist of, uh, of our region. I'm going to share a little bit of your bio. You have a very long bio, but just for the, the listeners, just to have a small idea about uh, what you've done. So you are the general partner and founder of Global Ventures since 2018, and probably one of the very few women VCs in the region. Uh, you sit on several boards. Uh, you're the chairwoman of the Middle East Venture Capital Association. Um, you are also have been an entrepreneur in your uh, in your uh, my prior life. Your prior <laughs> life. So you uh, you founded uh, Zen Yoga, which you sold uh, to Cedar Bridge in 2014. And before that, you were the managing director of strategy at Depa, where you led their uh, IPO on the Nasdaq Dubai. It was 1.1 billion dollar. Yes. So uh, a unicorn by today's standard. <laughs> yeah, a unicorn. But yeah, and that's in 2013. So no, 2008. Uh, sorry, I have 2005 to 2013. That was in 2008. So yeah, the IPO. The IPO was in 2008. And you stayed with the company. Nasdaq, Dubai and London Stock Exchange. So it's one of the first regional companies to list on the main board in the LSE. Um, and that was in April 2008, just before the financial crisis. Wow. Yeah, a long time ago. So you've been in the you're, you've been in the finance industry from uh, since the start of your career, basically. Almost, yeah. Um, in contracting, in health and wellness, scaling companies. Before that, in biotech and pharma in Boston for a while. Okay. Um, so working with most of the big pharma's. So really, across different industries, but really with the whole purpose of how do you scale companies, how do you do M and A, how do you structure liquidity events. Great. So you're the so you're the best person to talk to about venture capital, and maybe just again for our listeners, if you can give us just a sort of a, a top view of what what does the VC industry look like in the region today. Uh, so I I think it's probably the fastest growing industry in the region today. It's a really exciting time. It's hit an inflection point that means we had a billion dollars invested in first half of this year versus a billion dollars the entire of last year. Yes. So it's really on that acceleration curve that we like to see the exponential growth, not of the companies, but of the industry. Um, there are a few VC funds, a handful a few years ago and multiple handfuls now. Um, it's very collaborative as any young ecosystem should be. Um, and we're seeing some fantastic companies being built across the region. Okay. 
So, um, so what does a VC firm do exactly? So you invest in startups, but how does it work in terms of your partners, your LPs? Can you maybe explain that structure a little bit? Absolutely. So we put together a fund. A fund is just a fancy term for any investment vehicle that has multiple investors. So we go out to market and we talk to many investors. Mm -hmm. A lot of our investors are international. So 60% of our LPs, limited partners who are our investors, um, are in the U.S. Okay, and so is there is that by design that's or? That's by design. Okay. So we we want the region. We also want the U.S. You know, people talk about building the bridge. We talk about becoming the bridge. Okay. So by having sixty percent U.S. LPs, forty percent regional LPs, like the Mubadalas of the world, everyone pulls their capital, puts it in this fund. We have a very interesting mix of investors that are then ready to support our portfolio companies. Okay. So we take all this money that got put in the fund and we invest it in 15, 20 companies. Okay. Um, we take minority stakes, never majority. Okay. And our job is to help these companies grow, hopefully do 10x in a three to five year period. Okay. Um, and you have a certain amount of time to invest the money and then a certain amount of time to create exits. So you said you would invest then 15, 15 to 20 companies? So fund companies? one that we raised um, in 2018 was $50 million. And that was invested across 22 companies. Okay. So, yeah. And is there a fund too? And, and fund two we're raising right now okay. and we're deploying right now. We've already done 13 investments out of fund two. Um, okay. Fund two is 50% digital health. Yes, um, I could see from like your LinkedIn profile, you're very much <laughs> bullish on, uh, on health tech. On now. health tech yeah. and healthcare inclusion. Uh, you know, one of the things we're seeing now in healthcare inclusion and how that's become a priority is really the same thing we saw 10 years ago with financial inclusion and then fintech became a priority. And healthcare, we have that same gap. So we invest across Middle East Africa. It's one and a half billion people. And we have 1.2 doctors per thousand as opposed to four and a half, which is where the US is. And so that access gap number of doctors, number of hospital beds is so similar mm. to after the financial crisis when everyone started talking about 85% on banks and so on. It's the same story. And we didn't fix financial inclusion by building banks. We're not going to fix healthcare inclusion by building hospitals. Okay. So we're seeing that same leapfrogging. Okay. Well, um, just uh, another thing on the on the where the investments are happening. So I've been seeing a lot of announcements happening in uh, in Saudi, in Egypt. There's a lot of talk that they're going to be the next uh, big markets. Do you do you agree, or is the UAE still going to get the lion's share in your view? I think that each country has its own niche and its own ability to create a competitive advantage. So, okay. you know, Egypt's 100 million people. Yes. You're not, you can't build that overnight. <laughs> no one can. So um, there has, you know, they definitely have that advantage. That's definitely a strong market. Um, Saudi has incredible um, talent as well, as well as a larger market. Their GDP per capita is very different to Egypt's. It's a big consumer base. So Saudi's an interesting market. The UAE has the ability for companies to really connect with international conglomerates. So all of you know, AWS's head offices are in Bahrain in the UAE. And you take a look also at Microsoft historically and Google. And so if you really want to build a global company, the UAE tends to offer the infrastructure, the regulatory friendliness um, of international investors. Okay. Um, and so every market has its own attractive um, positioning. Okay. But you need to be, I guess, you need to be set up in all uh, either way for you to be able to cover the the region. We have as a firm twenty four people. 
Okay. So we have people. We have You've four, grown. We've grown tremendously. <laughs> okay. So we have four people on the ground in Egypt. We have three on the ground in Saudi. We have people on the ground in Nigeria. Okay. Um, so you know, we really believe that VC is local. It's local sourcing, local diligence, and then local value creation post investment, which is what we focus on. Okay, so there's been, if we look back at this week, um, there's been, uh, well, previous week, there have been uh, two really big announcements in the, in the space, one of which was the partial exit of uh, Mom's World uh, and uh, to one of their existing investors, actually, uh, Tamer Group. And the other one is obviously the, uh, the Kitopi 415 million uh, Series C fund uh, round by SoftBank, uh, by SoftBank's Vision Fund. So let's unpack them a little bit because you are an investor in both. Um, so you've had a really good week. We've had a great week. You've had a great <laughs> week. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Momsworth because you've been, were you an angel investor in the company? Yeah, so we've been in, you've been in the company since, you know, almost nine years now. Okay. And it must have been a, a, you know, a tumultuous journey given like all the competition that was in and, it, you know, she's trying to build like a, a niche uh, vertical with mom and baby, albeit it's a very big vertical. But can you take us maybe through some of like the, the highlights of the journey? Absolutely. So I think the early years of any company are very exciting. It's about vision, mission, mm -hmm. excitement, and uh, there's always a great buzz, great energy. Um, and that's very typical. And Mom's World was no different. I mean, then you get to a point where competition starts coming in and fear kicks in. And I think at that point in time, it's always very important to recognize that and say, I'm not going to react from a place of fear. Here's my vision, my mission. I don't want to look at what competition's doing. I'm going to build the best that I can build within my vision. And, and Mona did that incredibly well, which was, we are everything mother, baby, and child. And that's who our customer is. And so as she continued along to build that vision and that mission, um, it really attracted the right people around her. She was able to, to see where she's going. Um, and the competition slowly left the market. I and mean, we saw it over the last few years. It's a very, very difficult space to operate if you are not 120% committed. Are you talking about the, the, this, yeah, the this smaller market. startups? Or the are smaller you talking about startups. Yes. So there were quite a few smaller startups that tried. I think like with most things in life, some people make it look easy. Hmm. So I think when you have a founder like Mona and Mom's World and it's growing, from the outside it's like, well, how hard can this be? You know, I've been a founder, I was like, how hard can it be to build a yoga studio? Right? And ultimately we built a big franchise, but it was hard. And I think people underestimate how difficult it is to be a founder, especially because when you see other founders' successes, yeah. it looks like it's easy. You don't hear all the failure stories along the way. Yeah. Um, so Mina really stuck to the vision and the mission, and over the many years the company grew and positioned itself, cemented itself as a leader in the industry, um, and that ultimately led to a great exit. So, so uh, this, is a, this is new, right? This is basically a, a shareholder or a family business acquiring a startup. We haven't seen a lot of that historically, correct? In the region, it's relatively new. Yeah. I think in the region, um, a lot of conglomerates and family businesses um, took a while to become comfortable with technology and then yeah. tried to identify what are the biggest pain points and perhaps try to invest directly, um, perhaps try to build directly. Mm -hmm. Recently, I think, I think that usually happens most of the time. That usually happens. I think that there, the conclusion is, is being identified now as um, we need to acquire 
and we need to acquire substantial players so we don't accidentally trample on them, right? And I, that's what we see. So we see even in our fund, we have a lot of strategic investors that, for example, might be an insurance company mm -hmm. or something along those lines that will say, you know, we, we love what you do, we want access, but we're so scared to trample on these little companies because we know if we acquire them when they're so small, um, they kind of get lost in our very large conglomerate. So they have to wait until they're a certain size. Yeah. So I think that the M&A market will become more active because companies are starting to become a certain size and the conglomerates are starting to understand that the acquisition strategy is really where it's at. Globally, 70% of VC exits are industry M&A. Okay. So this is a very typical exit by global standards. The region is finally catching up and it's incredibly exciting. So what is what signal is this sending to entrepreneurs in general that this is this could be a possibility then? Yes, and I think the other signal is that you don't have to build a billion dollar company in order to exit. Right? And I think we saw the same with InstaShop a few months ago. Yes. Where it's a 200 or 300 million dollar exit is fantastic. Take it. And then go on, take a break, go build something else. If yes. you have that founder DNA, that's the job. The job is not just to build billion dollar companies. Great advice. Were you actively involved as a, as a board member with Mom's World or no. like in the early days? I, I tend to be more actively involved with the founders. Okay. So I feel like my role is much more with the founder, thinking through strategy over a long lunch um, and really hearing what are the challenges. Um, board positions are fantastic um, for steering. I think that coaching is more effective in helping founders build companies. And that's where the operating expertise is sometimes um, leveraged better. Okay. And I'm sure they weighed in several options, right? So were there options for them to, to raise more funding or was this the, the best option at the time? I think there's always several options. Yeah. So you can always try to raise more capital, you can always sell, you can always just wind down the company, you can always SPAC if you find the right SPAC partner. Um, so I think that this is a very strategic acquisition that leaves um, the founders with the ability to continue to Continue to, to lead the yeah. company. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations on, on that one. Thank you. And then, and then there's, um, there's the other announcement, obviously, which probably is the largest uh, funding round that has happened in this region, correct? 415 million? Yeah. So it's a, it's a very important funding round. Okay, but I think what's, what's really interesting, because I looked at their funding history mm -hmm. uh, for Kitopi. So they, they did the first funding round in April of 2018, mm -hmm. and that was 1.8 million. Then in November of 2018, just a few months after, they did 27 million. Um, and then in November 2019, a year later, they did 60 million, and that was where uh, Global Ventures came in, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then now, you know, uh, a year later, again, well, nearly two years later, you have 415 million. So did you, did you see this coming when you invested? Did you think it's going to be that big? Uh, so we invested in the November 2018 round. Um, so I think right at the beginning when it was still one kitchen um, okay. and, and the founder is, you know, a visionary again, kind of like Muna where it's, I'm going to build something. It's going to be huge. Um, a lot of excitement, a lot of passion for what they do. Um, and in venture you back the founder. So for us, it's the company might be a great idea, but the founder needs to have a lot of conviction, a lot of execution strength. Um, and COVID was the biggest test to that. So when COVID hit, when you back the founder, the founder can pivot and move the company to a different direction if you need to. 
Whereas if you had back the company or business model, but the founder wasn't someone that could execute, the company crumbled. Right? And so that's what we mean when we say we back the founder. You have to back people that are able to execute on a big vision and are able to have, you know, my favorite expression is strong opinions loosely held. Okay. So they have a strong opinion about where they want to go, but they're open to listening and modifying if things change. And that's where we back founders. And so here again, it was the founder with a great vision mission. He's a second time founder. He'd had an exit before, which gives you a lot more conviction on execution. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we backed him. Um, I think as the company grew, it modified the business model, the vision changed a bit and um, increasing amounts of capital required to build out this new business model, which is fantastic for the company. Um, we made incredible returns as investors. Um, but now it needs a different type of investor. Now it's much more the larger private equity style investors as they continue to build out the vision. Yeah, I haven't seen, I mean, personally, as an entrepreneur, I've been here, you know, for nearly uh, over, over a decade now. I haven't seen a company raise as much money as, as fast as they've done. And it's really uh, tremendous what, they, what they've built uh, and how they were able to do it. So was it necessary to bring in uh, obviously SoftBank and uh, funds from outside of the region? And could, could we have funded it uh, in our region? I think we could have. I think that the composition of the investors um, speaks to the strategy of the company. Okay. So it's not just about raising capital, it's about raising the right capital for this round and for the next step of the company's future. And expanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, where, are you still an investor in the company or was there a partial exit? In Kitopi? Yes. Kitopi was mainly exits. Okay, oh so, wow, so yeah. you've, you've done, uh, you've done really well. We've so had they, a good week. They were, they were part of Fund One? Um, yes, they were okay. in Fund One. Okay. So Fund One's had some good returns. As a fund to return and distribute um, a very significant portion of the fund back to investors in year three, um, is, is outstanding. Yes. I'm super <laughs> proud of the team, the investments, the founders. Uh, so it's, it's been a lot of hard work and it's great when it pays off. And, and like with everything you know, in the world, you're better lucky than wise. Yeah. And I think that you know, we just had a really good week last week. Indeed. So that's a good segue actually, because I wanted to ask you a little bit about returns uh, for funds because I, I, was, I was reading up on it and I saw that globally, you know, a good fund should return three times the invested capital over the 10 year period. Uh, and these are like the, the top, basically the top tier funds. Mm -hmm. So I know that venture capital is quite nascent in, in our part of the world, but it has been growing significantly. There are many VCs today than they were 10 years ago. So what are the expectations? I mean, again, given that you haven't had these like huge exits at, uh, in, in large numbers, right? So. So what are, the, what are the expectations in terms of returns? Honestly, you know, we, we look at generating at least 30% IRR a year over the period of the Okay, fund. and that puts you in the top basically quartile of funds globally. Yes, and we are, our ranking last year was in the top quartile of funds globally. So, but I believe that we have to have that in order to attract capital into the region. It's still a very young region. Um, lots of people have invested in Brazil and in China and India and are now looking at the region. Um, so it's interesting. We've had a lot of international investors come into our companies as follow-ons. So most recently we had Dragoneer, which is one of the larger hedge funds or well, crossover funds around the world, um, come into one of our companies. We've had General Catalyst. We've had GFC do six of our companies. Um, so really it's one of these regions where 
a lot of people are eyeing it and they're ready to start tiptoeing in. Um, and it, you have to deliver those returns for them to do that consistently over time. Okay, so this is, this is really changing as well uh, from perhaps previously, because now you, you have some track record, you can see where the companies are headed. Uh, and you're able to deliver 30% uh, annually. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's great. So, so in terms of exit routes, then you said M&A um, is globally around 70% of exits. That's what you said. Yes. So we expect perhaps to see more of this in this region. What are the other exit potentials that you see for startups in this part of the world? So you're investing uh, in, their, in their future. So where do you, where do you see them landing? So I think that there's a few. I think that IPOs are definitely kind of on the mark in Saudi. We're seeing a lot of IPOs happening in Saudi. And I think those are also opportunities to roll up. So there's going to be consolidation and rolling up of certain industries and verticals okay. as companies IPO. I also think that SPACs are an option. We saw Anrami SPAC earlier this year. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully there will be a few more um, in the coming year. It's not that complicated. Um, and it's a great exit path for, for regional investors and founders. Is it an expensive path, though? Because I, you know, from uh, uh, from my talks with people who are who are close to that deal, they said that it was uh, was quite an expensive deal to happen. Well, it's a, you know it's a very standard structure. So the SPAC promoter will take twenty percent of the yeah. value of the company. Um, you know, you have to ask yourself: if I raise capital here versus globally, what is the valuation difference? And if that valuation difference is 20%, mm -hmm. then no, it's effectively free. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that valuation difference is usually more than 20%. So I actually think that you're better off raising an international round or spacking internationally and giving 20% promote. It feels expensive because it's a lot of capital, mm -hmm. but you're still getting a better deal as a founder than perhaps raising a follow-on round here. And you're getting liquidity as a founder and for your investors, and it's more strategic. Um, and you know, then also have access to capital markets yes. because you're public. So on a cost-benefit analysis, you get a lot of advantages. And I don't think that you're penalized on the valuation because the region penalizes founders quite a bit. And is that changing? Slowly. Are you changing it? <laughs> I, it's, our role is to come in and work with the founders as partners. Okay. So we always try to look for what we believe is fair. Um, internationally, valuations are soaring. Um, and I just don't think that that is solid or sustainable. Okay. So hopefully the region will maintain something that is more sustainable. Okay. You don't lead rounds uh, with Global Ventures or you do? We do. So you do. You set the terms. You set yes. the valuation. We, we lead many rounds. We're not opposed to other people leading rounds, though. Okay. We have to be collaborative. We want to be collaborative. Um, whatever the founder decides is best for the founder and the company is where we'll come in. Okay. I'm curious, Noor, why, why do you do this on a, on a personal level, like as Noor? Why, why is this interesting for you? Is it the, the stress of it? Is it <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't really believe in stress in life. I think what stress is... is she is founded it? a yoga studio, so like, <laughs> one would think you'd kind of tend to stay away from venture capital. No, for me, I fell into venture capital by accident. So when I founded Zen Yoga at the same time, I was working in our family business. And when I joined DEPA, it was about $60 million revenue. Um, worked on a private placement, worked on the growth. Three years later, it's $600 million revenue. It had become the biggest in the world across 22 countries from six, 9,500 employees from 1,000. So really did that 10X in three years. I then led the IPO in April 08. 
um, and stayed running the public company side of things and, and global M&A for five years um, and strategy and, and a bunch of other things. So, and then 2013, we sold completely, left the board as a family and, and moved on. Um, at the same time, you know, Zen Yoga, I started because I moved back to Dubai in 2005 and I was a very big yogi and I had originally moved back with Booz Allen and I couldn't find a yoga studio. Um, and to me, that was, you know, one of these things where I want my yoga studio health and wellness are very important to me. And, um, and so I thought, you know, as with most problems in life, you can either sit and complain or do something about it. So I said, okay, well, then I start a yoga studio, you know, mistakenly thinking that I wouldn't work that hard in family business. Mistaking um, you thinking, sorry? That yeah. I wasn't going to work that hard in okay. family business. Okay. Um, not realizing you work twice as hard in family business as you do as a consultant. Um, in the meantime, Zen grew. So it wasn't intentional, but it kind of grew and grew. And my first two so teachers... So they were both happening at the same time? At the time. same time. Okay. And so the first two teachers that I hired, I hired from Boston because there weren't any Yoga Alliance certified teachers here. And I'm a stickler for the right, uh, the right instruction, the right governance, the right transparency. It's just a theme in my life. And when I do things, I like to do them properly. So I hired um, two teachers from Boston, brought them over here. Um, and those were the first two teachers at Zen. Um, a few years later, we had 72 teachers, 6,000 students a month. And I was also at the same time um, you know, running a billion dollar company. And when people would ask me, what keeps you up at night? thinking it's the contracting, we had 200 projects a year, we had you know, the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore and so on. In my head, I'm like, really? It's these studios, it's Zen Yoga. <laughs> and so the, the growth of Zen Yoga was causing, uh, I, I don't want to use the word stress, but it was much more complicated than one would think. Okay. And I realized that being a founder was in some ways much harder than running a public company. And um, so I started working with other founders and started angel investing and trying to be supportive just in my personal capacities and then realized that these founders just needed more and more capital and I'm not that scalable and a lot of them would raise capital abroad, they would move, that's called a brain drain, I don't want to contribute to that and so really got to a point where um, once I had exited Zen Yoga, exited Depa, um, took a step back and said you know, as an entrepreneur, what is the problem I want to tackle? and maybe make a little bit of a dent in solving, mm -hmm. right? And that problem was actually access to capital for founders. So went back and reflected and realized that Depa's growth story started with $120 million private placement, right? That we did it, capital, a growth capital round, and that then spurred us to create all those jobs and all of that growth. And without that capital, it would have been nearly impossible to grow the company. And so really started working and thinking, if we want to create all these jobs in the region, we have 40% unemployment in our youth and half the population is under 30. And if we want to impact financial inclusion and healthcare inclusion, the fastest growing companies are the ones backed with VC money. A US-based company with VC backing creates 2.8 times as many jobs as a non-VC backed company. So in every way, shape and form, you know, starving these founders of capital hurts everyone. And there's not enough capital. Um, so well, we invest, there is, like, but not in VC. Not in VC. So we invest 0.02% of our GDP in venture. You know, other countries invest 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.8. So 40 times as much as a percentage of GDP. 
So when we think about how can we actually you know, impact livelihoods, create jobs, you know, help healthcare inclusion, financial inclusion, the future of work, gender empowerment, and all of these things. So we do align with five UN SDGs and we measure consistently across these SDGs, our portfolio. So 5,800 jobs have been created across our portfolio in the last two years. Wow, you really do measure We everything. do, no, 13 million people have been financially included using our portfolio companies. We won't take credit, it's not our FinTech, but enabling these fintechs to grow using the right capital enables them to then create this impact. Yes. Right. And so putting more capital in the ecosystem is my current entrepreneurial challenge. So I don't think of myself as an investor. We have, you know, I am an investor. I've been doing this since 2009. But at the same time, it's much more there is a problem that needs to be solved. And I'm an entrepreneur 80% of my time and an investor 20% of my time. Yeah. And when you and I spoke a few times earlier, you, you did mention a lot of times that you want to support women and not, not as a, you know, not publicly, so not for PR purposes. <laughs> we, we, we discussed it uh, privately. And wh why is that important for you? So I think that, you know, I've been very blessed and fortunate to be able to study and to, to do the things that I've done in my life um, and not without resistance. So it's never been a smooth sailing journey. It's never been without resistance. It's never been without obstacles and substantial ones in different parts of my life. Um, and I feel that I'm just very blessed to have overcome that resistance and those obstacles and been able to pursue what I believe I wanted to pursue and why I was put here. Um, I don't think that it's fair that not everybody's able to pursue their passions in life and to really fulfill their journey um, the way that they believe they were put here to do it. And so with that, I feel that women are disadvantaged in our part of the world um, and that there do tend to be a lot of restrictions, um, some legal, some cultural, some educational. And so really enabling women to pursue their education as they want to pursue jobs, as they want to pursue financial independence, as they believe they should, is definitely important. And is there something that you think we should be doing more of as, you know, as someone in the leading in the in an industry where uh, where potentially it could be a path for women to see more startups and more female entrepreneurs but we don't see a lot of them uh, so is there more that we could be doing or is there something specific that we should be doing you know like you have these initiatives where you have to have women on boards etc i mean is it i think that you know we're we're looking and we're very in the data driven. So we're t doing the analysis and saying, you know, what series do women fall off at? So a lot of women start companies on the seed level. The percentages are very different than on the series B level, right? So we're trying to assess, you know, why is that? Which will then lead us to what more can we mm -hmm. be doing? Um, is it because they're building companies that solve problems, for example, that they are aware of and the people funding the companies aren't as aware of those problems? Mm -hmm. So is it a language or a recognition challenge? Um, is it a gender bias? Um, is it the age at which they're starting companies? Is it their background? So we're really trying to assess before we come up with you know, proposed solutions. What I will say is we've recently done some analytics based on you know, a hunch that we have um, at Global Ventures, which is say, what is the percentage of female founders across industries? And is there any sort of correlation with the percentage of female founders in the Fortune 500s? Okay. Right. To so say, like, let's say contracting or construction, zero in this industry in venture, and a very small percentage of Fortune 500s, if any. Whereas things like education 
or healthcare, there's a lot more women as a percentage of total mm -hmm. C-suites in Fortune 500, and the percentage of female founders in these spaces is much higher versus FinTech, which is much lower. So given that there's a correlation and given that now is definitely a hot time to do ed tech, health tech, we are seeing more female founders coming mm -hmm. to the space and then it's our role to support them. Yeah, that's a great point actually. Uh, I had Ramesh Shahade uh, as my last guest and he mentioned, he mentioned that, he mentioned that funds, especially governments, uh, when they're funding certain initiatives, you should give them some focus, you know, and focus on areas where we could win uh, versus areas where we could play. And I think that, that applies potentially to maybe focusing on industries where women historically do better or are more interested in these industries. Yeah. That's, that's exciting. So if, uh, if uh, somebody wants to go into venture capital, is, do you have any advice for them? Well, we have a fantastic internship program every okay. summer. <laughs> so <laughs> we have an eight-week internship program. Okay. Um, we took 18 interns this, week, this year. Uh, we had 1,240 applications. Wow. So it's, um, I, you know, I don't run it, the team does, okay. um, but it's, uh, it's intense and there's a lot of VC internships around the world. Um, I'll tell you that we, we like to work with people who have been on the operating side, on the founder side historically, and they seem to understand the challenges founders face a little okay. bit more deeply. Um, you know, so your recommendation is to join an existing VC and see if there are any of these... Uh, yeah. Uh, internship programs. Do do others do that? I haven't know. heard of that. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I have no idea. Like I said, we take a look at you know what can we do best and how can we work with the ecosystem. Okay. And we build accordingly. Okay. And any is there any advice that you have for founders that are trying to pitch you? You know, I'm sure you receive uh, a lot of decks as a team, and then some of them probably end up on your uh, on your desk eventually. We do. We receive you know, about 300 to 350 opportunities a month. Um, wow. So yeah, it's a, a day, it's a tough job. Um, and uh, we, I mean, we like founders that have done their homework. So it's, you know, why, why are we the right firm? Why are we the right investor? Are, are questions that I tend to ask founders. Okay. And, you know, we invest in series A onwards. We do a little bit pre-A. Mm -hmm. We definitely don't do seed. Um, and so just like we would never waste a founder's time, it makes sense the founders have done, done their homework before they come and sit with us. Yeah. What were some of like, have you had some great answers to that question? Like why us as a firm? Um, I mean, I think that it's clear when someone's done their work and there's one reason versus, you know, when it's simply flattery or I need capital. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But is it, what is it, like, in, in your view, is it that you have the access, is it the know-how of the team and the access to follow-on funding, like, to external Well, I can't give you the markets? answer on your podcast, no? because then everyone, then everyone will come and say it. I'm trying to help them. This is meant to be advice. I, I think with every VC, do your homework first. Know what they like to invest in, read their posts, yeah. um, you know, know what stage they invest, know yeah. what geographies they invest in. Um, right before before you sit with someone to ask them to partner with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe m not many people do that. No. So they just go in for uh, for yeah. capital. Mm -hmm. Hello, give us money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'm gonna ask you just um, five questions with like one word answer okay. uh, or two word, whatever comes up to your mind, and okay. we can wrap up. Um, so, what's your favorite activity? Wake surfing. This is new, wake surfing? No. You've been doing it for a long time? Yes. Oh, wow, okay. 
Where do you do it? In Marina. Okay. Uh, best way to disconnect? Yoga. What's your favorite productivity hack? Post-it app. Post-it app? Yes. Okay. Have you seen the post-it I haven't, app? no. It's no. incredible. What it like stickies? Like sticky like notes? Like stickies, but on, on, on an app, and then you can have them different colors. So like okay. one for family, one for kids, one for work, one uh -huh. for to-do list. On your mobile. On your mobile, and then you can share them with people. Oh, and then great. so after every meeting, when I leave the meeting, as I'm walking to the car, I put my to-dos from that meeting, and that way I don't forget. And then before I sleep, I just clear out all my post-its. Oh, that's great. Thank yeah. you for that. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, what motivates you? Um, what motivates me? I don't know. Stress? <laughs> no, no stress. Um, I don't know what motivates me. My children motivate me. Um, my team motivates me. Other people motivate me more than anything else. And really watching founders build incredible companies. And what upsets you? Or disappoints you? Oh. Um... When people don't do what they say they're going to do. I think okay. in general, in life, at work, um, I like to keep my commitments. And it's disappointing when others feel like, oh yeah, I said X, but I'm going to do Y. Um, and I, I tend to try to count on people. So if someone commits to something, I'll take their word for it. So when people don't keep their words, it's quite disappointing. Okay. Thank okay. you so much, Noor. That was great advice. Thank You're you welcome. for coming. Thank and, you for having uh, me. For giving us your time. and. Best of luck in all your investments and congratulations again on a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lulu. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Conversations with Lulu. I do hope you found it insightful. Uh, Noor shared a lot of uh, great insights about the exit of Mom's World, the latest funding round of Kitopi, uh, her advice to people that want to get into venture capital, her advice to entrepreneurs and more. So uh, if you like what you are listening to, please make sure to leave us a review on any of your favorite podcast apps. If you want to reach out to me, you can visit my website, conversationswithlulu.com, and you can contact me uh, with regards to sponsorship opportunities, guest recommendations, feedback, or anything else that you'd like to discuss with me. You can also reach me on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, at Lulu Hazen. So I wish you a great rest of the day and see you again in a few weeks. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.